Book Three, Part One of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book Three, Part One, Parts One to Nineteen. Cyrus' son Cambyses was leading an army of his subjects, Ionian and Aeolian Greeks among them, against the Samosis for the following reason. Cambyses had sent a herald to Egypt, asking Amasis for his daughter. He asked on the advice of an Egyptian, who advised it out of resentment against Amasis, that out of all of the Egyptian physicians Amasis had dragged him away from his wife and children, and sent him up to Persia when Cyrus sent to Amasis asking for the best eye doctor in Egypt. Out of resentment, the Egyptian, by his advice, induced Cambyses to ask Amasis for his daughter, so that Amasis would either be wretched if he gave her, or hated by Cambyses if he did not. Amasis, intimidated by the power of Persia and frightened, could neither give his daughter nor refuse her, for he knew well that Cambyses was not going to take her as his wife, but as his concubine. After considering the matter, he did as follows. There was a daughter of the former king, Apris, all that was left of that family, quite tall and pretty, and her name was Nitetus. This girl Amasis adorned with clothes and gold, and sent to Cambyses as his own daughter. But after a time, as he embraced her, addressing her as the daughter of Amasis, the girl said to him, O king, you do not understand how you have been made a fool of by Amasis, who dressed me in finery and sent me to you as his own daughter, when I am in fact the daughter of Apris, the ruler Amasis revolted from with the Egyptians and killed. This speech and this crime that occurred turned Cyrus' son Cambyses furiously angry against Egypt. So the Persians say. But the Egyptians, who say that Cambyses was the son of this daughter of a priest, claim him as one of theirs. They say that it was Cyrus who asked Amasis for his daughter, and not Cambyses, but what they say is false. They are certainly not unaware, for if any understand the customs of the Persians the Egyptians do, firstly that it is not their custom for illegitimate offspring to rule when there are illegitimate offspring, and secondly that Cambyses was the son of Cassandane, the daughter of Pharnaspis, who was an Achaemenid, and not of the Egyptian woman. But they falsify the story, pretending to be related to the house of Cyrus. That is the truth of the matter. The following story, incredible to me, is also told, that one of the Persian women who came to visit Cyrus' wives, and saw the tall and attractive children who stood by Cassandane, expressed her admiration in extravagant terms. Then Cassandane, Cyrus' wife, said, Although I am the mother of such children, Cyrus dishonours me and honours his new woman from Egypt. So she spoke in her bitterness against Nitetus, and Cambyses, the eldest of her sons, said, Then, mother, when I am grown up, I will turn all Egypt upside down. When he said this, he was about ten years old, and the women were amazed. But he kept it in mind, and it was thus that when he grew up and became king, he made the campaign against Egypt. It so happened, too, that something else occurred contributing to this campaign. There was among Amasis mercenaries a man who was a Halicarnassian by birth, a clever man and a good soldier, whose name was Fanes. This Fanes had some grudge against Amasis, and fled from Egypt aboard ship, 
hoping to talk to Cambyses. Since he was a man much admired among the mercenaries, and had an exact knowledge of all Egyptian matters, Amasis was anxious to catch him, and sent a trireme with his most trusted eunuch to pursue him. This eunuch caught him in Lycia, but never brought him back to Egypt, for Fanes was too clever for him. He made his guards drunk, and so escaped to Persia. There he found Cambyses prepared to set out against Egypt, but in doubt as to his march, how he should cross the waterless desert. So Fanes showed him what was Amos's condition, and how he should march. As to this, he advised Cambyses to send and ask the king of the Arabians for a safe passage. Now the only apparent way of entry into Egypt is this. The road runs from Phoenicia as far as the borders of the city of Cadatus, which belongs to the so-called Syrians of Palestine. From Cadatus, which as I judge is a city not much smaller than Sardis, to the city of Ienesus the seaports belong to the Arabians. Then the Assyrian again from Ienesus as far as the Sabonian marsh, beside which the Cassian promontory stretches seawards. From this Sabonian marsh, where Typho is supposed to have been hidden, the country is Egypt. Now between Aenesis and the Cassian mountain and the Sabonian marsh there lies a wide territory for as much as three days' journey, terribly arid. I am going to mention something now which few of those who sail to Egypt know. Earthen jars full of wine are brought into Egypt twice a year from all Greece and Phoenicia besides, yet one might safely say there is not a single empty wine-jar anywhere in the country. What then, one may ask, becomes of them? I shall explain this, too. Each governor of a district must gather in all the earthen pots from his own township and take them to Memphis, and the people of Memphis must fill them with water and carry them to those arid lands of Syria. So the earthen pottery that is brought to Egypt and unloaded or emptied there is carried to Syria to join the stock that has already been taken there. Now as soon as the Persians took possession of Egypt, they became the caretakers of the entryway into it, having it provisioned with water in the way I have described. But at this time there was as yet no ready supply of water, and so Cambyses, hearing what was said by the stranger from Halicarnassus, sent messengers to the Arabian and asked and obtained safe conduct, giving to him and receiving from him pledges. There are no men who respect pledges more than the Arabians. This is how they give them. A man stands between the two pledging parties, and with a sharp stone cuts the palms of their hands near the thumb. Then he takes a piece of wood from the cloak of each, and smears with their blood seven stones that lie between them, meanwhile calling on Dionysus and the heavenly Aphrodite. After this is done, the one who has given his pledge commands the stranger, or his countryman if the other be one, to his friends, and his friends hold themselves bound to honour the pledge. They believe in no other gods except Dionysus and the heavenly Aphrodite, and they say that they wear their hair as Dionysus does his, cutting it round the head and shaving the temples. They call Dionysus Orotolt, and Aphrodite Alilat. When then the Arabian had made the pledge to the messengers who had come from Cambyses, he devised the following expedient. He filled camel-skins with water, and loaded all his camels with these. Then he drove them into the waterless land, and there awaited Cambyses' army. 
This is the most credible of the stories told, but I must relate the less credible tale also, since they tell it. There is a great river in Arabia called Chorus, emptying into the sea called Red. From this river it is said the king of the Arabians brought water by an aqueduct made of sown ox-hides and other hides, and extensive enough to reach to the dry country, and he had great tanks dug in that country to try to receive and keep the water. It is a twelve days' journey from the river to that desert. By three aqueducts, they say, he brought the water to three different places. Semenitus, son of Amasis, was encamped by the mouth of the Nile called Pelusion, awaiting Cambyses. For when Cambyses marched against Egypt, he found Amasis no longer alive. He had died after reigning forty-four years, during which he had suffered no great misfortune, and being dead he was embalmed and laid in the burial-place built for him in the temple. While his son Semenitus was king of Egypt, the people saw an extraordinary thing, namely rain at Thebes of Egypt, where, as the Thebans themselves say, there had never been rain before, nor since to my lifetime, for indeed there is no rain at all in the upper parts of Egypt, but at that time a drizzle of rain fell at Thebes. When the Persians had crossed the waterless country and encamped near the Egyptians intending to engage them, the Egyptian mercenaries, Greeks and Carians, devised a plan to punish Fanes, angered at him for leading a foreign army into Egypt. Fanes had left sons in Egypt. These they brought to the camp, into their father's sight, and set a great bowl between the two armies. Then they brought the sons, one by one, and cut their throats over the bowl. When all the sons had been slaughtered, they poured wine and water into the bowl, and the mercenaries drank this, and then gave battle. The fighting was fierce, and many of both armies fell, but at last the Egyptians were routed. I saw a strange thing on the site of the battle, of which the people of the country had told me. The bones of those killed on either side in this fight lying scattered separately, for the Persian bones lay in one place and the Egyptian in another, where the armies had first separately stood, the skulls of the Persians are so brittle that if you throw no more than a pebble it will pierce them, but the Egyptian skulls are so strong that a blow of a stone will hardly crack them. And this, the people said, which for my own part I readily believed, is the explanation of it. The Egyptians shave their heads from childhood, and the bone thickens by exposure to the sun. This also is the reason why they do not grow bald for nowhere can one see so few bald heads as in Egypt. Their skulls, then, are strong for this reason, while the Persian skulls are weak because they cover their heads throughout their lives with the felt hats called tiaras which they wear. Such is the truth of the matter. I saw, too, the skulls of those Persians at Perpremis who were killed with Darius and Achaemenus by Inoros the Libyan, and they were like the others. After their rout in the battle, the Egyptians fled in disorder, and when they had been overtaken in Memphis, Cambyses sent a Persian herald up the river aboard a Mytilenean boat to invite the Egyptians to an accord. But when they saw the boat coming to Memphis, they sallied out altogether from their walls, destroyed the boat, dismembered the crew like butchers, and carried them within the walls. So the Egyptians were besieged, and after a long while surrendered, but the neighbouring Libyans, 
frightened by what had happened in Egypt, surrendered without a fight, laying tribute on themselves and sending gifts, and so too did the people of Cyrene and Barca, frightened like the Libyans. Cambyses received in all kindness the gifts of the Libyans, but he seized what came from Cyrene, and, displeased, I think, because it was so little, for the Cyreneans had sent five hundred silver minae, cast it with his own hands among his army. On the tenth day after the surrender of the walled city of Memphis, Cambyses took Semenitus, king of Egypt, who had reigned for six months, and confined him in the outer part of the city with other Egyptians to insult him. Having confined him there, he tried Semenitus' spirit, as I shall show. He dressed the daughter of the king as a slave, and sent her out with a pitcher to fetch water, together with other girls from the families of the leading men, dressed like the daughter of the king. So when the girls went out before their father's eyes, crying and lamenting, all the rest answered with cries and weeping, seeing their children abused. But Semenitus, having seen with his own eyes and learned all, bowed himself to the ground. After the water-carriers had passed by, Cambyses next made Semenitus' son go out before him with two thousand Egyptians of the same age, all with ropes bound around their necks and bridle-bits in their mouths. They were led out to be punished for those Mytilenians who had perished with their boat at Memphis, for such was the judgment of the royal judges, that every man's death be paid for by the deaths of ten noble Egyptians. When Semenitus saw them passing, and perceived that his son was being led out to die, and all the Egyptians who sat with him wept and showed their affliction, he did as he had done at the sight of his daughter. After these two had gone out, it happened that there was one of his companions, a man past his prime, who had lost all his possessions, and had only what a poor man might have, and begged of the army. This man now went out before Semenitus son of Amasis and the Egyptians confined in the outer part of the city. When Semenitus saw him he broke into loud weeping, striking his head and calling on his companion by name. Now there were men set to watch Semenitus, who told Cambyses all that he did as each went forth. Wondering at what the king did, Cambyses made this inquiry of him by a messenger. Semenitus, Lord Cambyses, wants to know why, seeing your daughter abused and your son going to his death, you did not cry out or weep, yet you showed such feeling for the beggar, who, as Cambyses learns from others, is not one of your kindred. So the messenger inquired. Semenitus answered, Son of Cyrus, my private grief was too great for weeping, but the unhappiness of my companion deserves tears. A man fallen from abundance and prosperity to beggary, come to the threshold of old age. When the messenger reported this, Cambyses and his court, it is said, thought the answer good. And the Egyptians say Croesus wept, for it happened that he too had come with Cambyses to Egypt. And the Persians that were there wept. Cambyses himself felt some pity, and he ordered that Semenitus' son be spared from those that were to be executed, and that Semenitus himself be brought in from the outer part of the city and brought before him. Those that went for him found that the son was no longer alive, but had been the first to be slaughtered. But they brought Semenitus up and led him to Cambyses, and there he lived, and no violence was done him for the rest of his life. And if he had known how to mind his own business, he would have regained Egypt to govern. For the Persians are inclined to honour kings' sons, 
even though kings revolt from them, they give back to their sons the sovereign power. There are many instances showing that it is their custom to do so, and notably the giving back of his father's sovereign power to Thanaris, son of Inaros, and also to Porcerus, son of Amateus. Yet none ever did the Persians more harm than Inaros and Amateus. But as it was, Semenitus plotted evil and got his reward, for he was caught raising a revolt among the Egyptians, and when Cambyses heard of it, Semenitus drank bull's blood and died. Such was his end. From Memphis Cambyses went to the city Sais, anxious to do exactly what he did do. Entering the house of Amasis, he had the body of Amasis carried outside from its place of burial, and when this had been done, he gave orders to scourge it and pull out the hair and pierce it with goads, and to desecrate it in every way. When they were weary of doing this, for the body, being embalmed, remained whole and did not fall to pieces, Cambyses gave orders to burn it, a sacrilegious command, for the Persians hold fire to be a god. Therefore neither nation thinks it right to burn the dead. The Persians, for the reason given, as they say it is wrong to give the dead body of a man to a god, while the Egyptians believe fire to be a living beast that devours all that it catches, and when sated with its meal dies together with that on which it feeds. Now it is by no means their custom to give the dead to beasts, and this is why they embalm the corpse, that it may not lie and feed worms. Thus what Cambyses commanded was contrary to the custom of both peoples. The Egyptians say, however, that it was not Amasis to whom this was done, but another Egyptian of the same age as Amasis, whom the Persians abused, thinking that they were abusing Amasis. For their story is that Amasis learned from an oracle what was to be done to him after his death, and so to escape this fate buried this dead man, the one that was scourged, near the door inside his own vault, and ordered his son that he himself should be laid in the farthest corner of the vault. I think that these commands of Amasis regarding the burial place and the man were never given at all, and that the Egyptians believed them in vain. After this Cambyses planned three expeditions, against the Carchidonians, against the Ammonians, and against the long-lived Ethiopians, who inhabit that part of Libya that is on the southern sea. He decided after consideration to send his fleet against the Carthaginians, and a part of his land army against the Ammonians. To Ethiopia he would first send spies, to see what truth there was in the story of a table of the sun in that country, and to spy out all else besides under the pretext of bringing gifts for the Ethiopian king. Now the table of the sun is said to be something of this kind. There is a meadow outside the city, filled with the boiled flesh of all four-footed things, here during the night the men of authority among the townsmen are careful to set out the meat, and all day whoever wishes comes and feasts on it. These meats, say the people of the country, are ever produced by the earth itself. Such is the story of the sun's table. When Cambyses determined to send the spies, he sent for those fish-eaters from the city of Elephantine who understood the Ethiopian language. While they were fetching them, he ordered his fleet to sail against Carthage, but the Phoenicians said they would not do it, for they were bound, they said, by strong oaths, and if they sailed against their own progeny they would be doing an impious thing, and the Phoenicians being unwilling, the rest were inadequate fighters. 
Thus the Carthaginians escaped being enslaved by the Persians, for Cambyses would not use force with the Phoenicians, seeing that they had willingly surrendered to the Persians, and the whole fleet drew its strength from them. The Cyprians, too, had come of their own accord to aid the Persians against Egypt. End of Book 3, Part 1